0: It's good to have you at Cornerstone Church this morning. Good to have uh, Dwayne and Tori from all the way this morning from Connecticut. Well, maybe not this morning. But friends of Mike and Doreen's, we thank the Lord that you're here this morning. Good to have Michael and Michaela and Raylan here this morning too. Good to have each of you here. We pray that God is glorified in this service. I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading again this week from verse 15 through 21. And I want you to know that it's an honor before God to preach to the saints who are in Myrtle Beach and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, For that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Please unite your heart with me this morning in prayer as we seek God's face. Father, God, we thank you that we can come into your presence. We know that you're the glorious one. We're unworthy, but by your grace, we enter in your presence as your children, as sons of the living God. God, thank you for your grace upon us, your mercy in Christ Jesus. God, thank You for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, Lord, all in Christ. God, I pray that we this morning would grasp, that we would be enamored with Your glory and in response to who You are, that we might consider our own lives that we might consider how we walk and how we use our time. We know that we will use our time for ourselves, our own desires, our own interest, or we will use our time for Your glory. Lord, You are worthy of all that we have and all that we do. Work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Ephesians is a God-breed book, recorded by the Apostle Paul, and it reveals the glorious mystery of Christ and His church. It reveals the glory of God in the face of Christ. The first first three chapters reveal what God has done to redeem a people for His namesake, and to bless us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And in revealing what God has done in Christ, God is revealing His glorious beauty, His grace. Paul reveals how we were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before Him in His presence. To be sun-placed so that now we are sons of the living God. He reveals how in Christ we are redeemed by His blood. We have forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of trespasses. And He has lavished on us, just poured out upon us, the riches of His grace. God has also made known the mystery of His will according to the purpose that He set forth in Christ. That in the fullness of time, that He would unite all things in Christ in one body. Paul reveals that God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive. He rose us from spiritual death and seated us in heavenly places. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace you have been saved, he says. And not only that, he has seated us together with Christ in the heavenlies. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. When in that day, we will share in the inheritance that belongs to Christ. For he is the firstborn among many brethren. We are sons of God through Christ, in other words, and we will share in Christ's inheritance. He has also made one body, both Jew and... And Gentile, and reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, so that we Gentiles are now, or no longer, excuse me, strangers to the covenants of promise, but are members of the household of God. I mean, just think the covenants of promise, that overarching Abrahamic covenant, and under that covenant is the Palestinian covenant, the land. The Davidic covenant, the king and his kingdom. And the new covenant, new hearts, changed hearts for the glory of God. We're no longer strangers to the covenants of promise, but now members of the household of God, together with the Old Testament saints. And we see the same thing in the other phrase we're no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but fellow citizens with the saints. We are one household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. A temple that's a glorious temple. It's actually described in Revelation 21 and 22 as that glorious city coming down in which God will dwell forever. The bride of the Lamb, it's called in Revelation 21. What a glorious plan that the God of glory would love His enemies with an everlasting love, that He would redeem sinners, that He would save those who were depraved, who were unlovely, who were wicked. That's the glory of God in the face of Christ. This glorious mystery... Excuse me. I'm having trouble with my throat and I have a cough drop in, so... This glorious mystery of Christ reveals the wisdom of God, but not just the wisdom of God. It reveals the manifold, the multifaceted, like the, the other way the word can be translated, the multicolored wisdom of God. It's as if we are the canvas. The church is the canvas. And with a multitude of colors, He, by His wisdom, has painted His image upon us. That's the wisdom of God in Christ. And here it is in Ephesians 3, 9 and 10. God has brought to light this mystery so that through the church the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And then verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, God's purpose never fails. God will redeem and is redeeming a people for His namesake, for His glory, and He will complete our salvation. He is faithful. Nick posted a quote this week by Martin Lloyd-Jones on his fake Facebook. You didn't think I was looking. It said this, Salvation is not ultimately for our sakes, but for the glory of God. God in salvation is vindicating Himself and manifesting Himself to the whole universe. He is displaying His everlasting and eternal glory. Hence, His purpose cannot and will not fail. We are beneficiaries of His marvelous grace, of the manifestation of, of His glory, of His multifaceted wisdom. And He will save us to completion one day in glory when we receive glorified bodies. But not only are we saved by His glorious grace, we are empowered by His grace to live for His glory. Ephesians three fourteen through 16 The Father, according to the riches of His glory, has strengthened us with power through His Spirit in the inner man. So not only are we saved by His glorious grace, we are empowered. And he goes on to say, So that Christ may dwell or live at home, to be at home in our hearts through faith. We are empowered to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we are empowered to be filled up with all the fullness of God so that the image of God lost in Adam is restored in Jesus Christ. God did not save us and leave us here to live according to our own initiative. He indwells His church. He empowers His church to live for His glory. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling, where our everyday walk is in balance with our position in Christ as sons of God, as redeemed, not walking as the Gentiles walk, but as we have learned Christ, we are empowered to strip off the old man, created, excuse me, corrupted with deceitful lust, and to put on the new man, created in the likeness of God. In true righteousness and holiness, we walk worthy of His calling when we walk in self-sacrificial love, a love that dies to self, a love that gives, that sacrifices, that puts the needs of others first. It's the love of Christ whereby He gave Himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. That's agape love. We are empowered to love as Christ loved. We walk worthy of His calling when we walk in the light as He is in the light, when we walk in truth and purity because we have the light of God in us. Thereby we are light in the Lord, as He says. We walk worthy of His calling when we walk in wisdom. And that's where we're at now. Not in the wisdom that's of this world, but the wisdom that comes from God. Wisdom that applies godly knowledge. Last week we saw in verse 15 that the wise walk is a careful walk. It's alert, always looking, examining, observing, not making any missteps. It's like a soldier walking through a minefield who he is careful and he needs God in this. He's careful where he walks. We're to do the same. We're to be careful in our everyday walk. Today we will see the wise walk is a time-conscious walk that makes the most of every opportunity. And then, and I just want you to see how all this fits together. In the next few weeks, we will see that a wise walk is a God-centered walk that understands what the will of the Lord is, but it's also a spirit field. A spirit. <laughs> I'm not 13. <laughs> Nothing against you young people. I went through that. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Allergies. Oh No. A wise walk is a spirit-filled walk that speaks to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that gives thanks to God in all things, that submits to one another in the fear of Christ, a walk in which wives submit to their husbands as to the Lord. You're empowered by the Spirit to do that even when it's hard. And husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, in which children obey their parents, and fathers do not provoke their children to in which slaves can obey their masters and masters can treat their slaves with respect. So today we will consider a wise walk is a time-conscious walk in verse 16, but I'll begin reading in verse 15 once again. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Imagine with me, if you would, that you've been placed on an island. Imagine that every one of us have been placed on our own individual little islands. And everything that we need for life is on our personal island. Now, your island is not like anybody else's island. It's not the same size. It does not have the same resources. It does not have the same adversaries or problems. And to the world that might seem unfair, but God think of this as God has sovereign you, sovereignly placed you on an island that He has prepared for you. Isn't that a little bit at least like life? Each of us have been given one life, a season to live, an opportunity. Not all of us have the have the same lifespans. Not all of us have the same trials or adversaries, or problems. Not all of us have the same blessings. But God has sovereignly placed each of us in this world just as He saw fit. We have different parents, different siblings, different friends, relatives, jobs, colleagues, different blessings. Some are rich and some are poor. Some experience more troubles than others. But what I do with my life in the context in which God has placed me is the opportunity God has given me. I'm sovereignly put there by an omniscient and a loving Creator. So as believers, we're responsible as to how we live in relation to going back to Ephesians 1-3, through 3, in relation to our glorious salvation, how do we make life's decisions? How do we, uh, how do we uh, mediate, how, how do we endeavor or travel through day-to-day living? Do I live for myself? Or do I really live for the glory of God? The one that loved me and die for me. You see, the pursuit of God's glory should affect everything about how we live our lives. It will determine whether we get a hold of God's glory, whether it is revealed to us and we grasp hold of God's glory. It will determine how we deal with the opportunity that God has given us. Yet, apart from the revelation of God's glory in the face of Christ, the details of my time on this earth don't don't really matter, do they? We can go through the motions, we can do the right things, but if it's not for the glory of God, we're just blowing smoke, aren't we? And that's where legalism fits in. You see, the glory of God makes all the difference. When we live for God, for His glory, because of His grace, it's no longer legalism, but it comes from a heart enamored with the glory and the grace and the majesty of a holy God, the one that sent Christ to love me. God in human flesh loved me and gave Himself for me. Apart from the revelation of God's glory, The details of our lives mean nothing. So in verses 15 and 16 again, God's word commands us, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. A careful walk makes the most of our time. Literally it reads, Redeeming the time because the days are evil. But time is not the word that you might think. It's not chronos the term for clock time, like hours and minutes and seconds. Rather, it's karyos, which denotes a measurement, an allotment, a fixed season or epoch, a period in history, the time that God has given us. But with that word karyos, time, He also gives us a definite article. It's not a time. This is the time. Ha, karyos. It indicates a fixed season, a fixed opportunity. Each of us have been given a fixed opportunity for the Lord, and we are to live for the glory of God. You see, God has set boundaries to our lives. My opportunity for worship or service only exists within the boundaries that God has established for me. God has sovereignly bounded our lives with eternity. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows our time on earth. Our days are chosen. Job 14.5 Since his or man's days are determined, the number of his months is with you, God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Our days are predetermined in God's sovereign plan. Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There it is. See, almost everything in the New Testament has a foundation in the old. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You see, in Christ, we have the wisdom of God, as we saw last day, last week. God has numbered our days, and so are we to number our days. In other words, to make the most of that opportunity, that predetermined time that God has given us. As believers, we are to redeem our predetermined our predetermined days, our season, our opportunity, our lives. And when we think of the word redeem... We often think of it in relation to salvation. Redeem, exorazo. Ex, out of, agorazo. To buy. It's used in the Old Testament in particular. It's used of a person that would buy a slave in order to set him free. But here, we are to redeem. We're to buy up. That's the idea. To buy up All the time that God has allotted to us in devotion to the Lord. The Greek is in the middle voice, meaning that we're to buy up the time ourselves. This is personal responsibility. This is gospel living. It is a faith response to God's glorious grace. But we must must not buy up the opportunity as God has given us for ourselves. We're not buying it up for ourselves. We're buying it up for the Lord's service, for God's glory again. Dr. John MacArthur writes, When we walk obediently in the narrow way of the gospel, we walk carefully, making the most of our time. We take full advantage of every opportunity to serve God, redeeming our time to use for His glory. We take every opportunity to shun sin And to follow righteousness. End of quote. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Paul speaks of our opportunities concerning those outside the church. Listen to what he says Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. We must take each responsibility, each opportunity to communicate with unbelievers. We're to respond to them with grace, even when they are ungraceful. With spiritual words is how we're to respond. Words that are loving but purposeful, kind but truthful, Words that are gentle and thoughtful. They're also to be seasoned with salt. Salt can sting. It's like truth, isn't it? Truth can sting, but it has a purifying effect. We need God's wisdom to know how to speak and when to speak to each person. We must use every opportunity that God gives us to evaluate each situation, to know exactly how God would have us to respond We're to use every opportunity to proclaim the glory of God with our actions, our attitudes, and our words. Proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6.10, Paul speaks of opportunities inside the church. He writes, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this is sort of outside and inside the church as well. But speaking of inside the church, this certainly involves sharing with those that have needs. We sacrifice for one another. That's the love of Christ. But doing good to all people, especially those of the household of faith, cares for others in a multitude of ways, doesn't it? Of course, it involves meeting spiritual needs, or physical needs, excuse me. But it also involves spiritual needs. It involves speaking the truth in love, sometimes rebuking, sometimes exhorting, but always doing so with long-suffering and doctrine or teaching. It's telling people the truth. We love people, we tell them the truth. We do it graciously and humbly, but we speak the truth in love. We must not waste the opportunity that God has given us. God has, in essence, given you one opportunity, your life. You cannot do anything about yesterday, but beginning today, may we live for the glory of God. We can't change the past. All of us have things in our past that we would love to change. Every one of us, I'm sure. I know I do. But moving ahead may we use the opportunity that's left for the glory of God. God gave Noah a hundred years to build the ark. He could have wasted time, but through faith, Noah built the ark for the saving of his household. Jesus said to His disciples, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. There's the opportunity in this text. As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. You see, it's a fixed time. You can't change the past. But God has empowered us by His Spirit to live for Him. And that includes using our time for His glory. Paul was an example of one who used his opportunity, his life for the glory of his Savior. In his final remarks to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. He said this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, in order that I may finish my course, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 20. Paul's opportunity was prescribed by the Lord, and he served God until his last breath. He ran the race that was set before Him. And He ran it with all His heart. So that at the end of His life, He could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You see, it matters. God's sovereign. But it matters, especially for those of us who believe. It matters what we do. It matters how we spend our time. God has put us here for His glory and for His purpose. We're not put here for ourselves. Verse 15 and 16, one more time. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. By the phrase, because the days are evil, Paul is likely, at least in part, referencing the pagan lifestyles of those in Ephesus. The lifestyle that surrounded them, the lifestyle that these believers had been saved out of. They were saved out of false religion, religion that promoted and resulted in all sorts of immoral practices. This was a pagan city, as was all of Asia Minor, apart from Christ. These believers in Ephesus were no doubt living in dark days, evil days. Chapter 4, verse 17, they were reminded that they must not walk as the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles walk in vainness of mind. This tells you something about the people in vainness of their minds, in dark understanding, in alienation from God because of their ignorance, due to the hardness of their hearts. These were hard hearted people. They were set, their faces were set against God. We're born that way, by the way. We're born in depravity. We're born in the kingdom of darkness. But God, who is rich in mercy, had saved these believers. They were to no longer live as the unbelieving Gentiles. These unbelieving Gentiles, it also says, I think it's verse 19, had given themselves over to sensuality and greed and every kind of impurity. What does that tell us? They were living for themselves to please self, to try to be satisfied through the things of the world. Ultimately, it's Satanism in practice. For we are, before salvation, children of the evil one. God has called us and empowered us to shun evil and to walk worthy of His calling, to be light in darkness to be wise in a foolish world. Today we're living in evil days which necessitates all the more that we walk in wisdom, making the most of our time, our opportunity, the life that God has given you. It's sovereignly chosen by God. It's not an accident. With all the problems, the frustrations, even persecution, God has put you exactly where He's put you. It is not an accident. And yet, You are to make the most. You're to buy up the time that God has given you. William Hendrickson sums up the words of Paul's, uh, sums up Paul's words in Ephesians when he writes, and I quote, They should not wait for opportunity to fall in their laps, but should buy it up, not counting the cost. In light of the entire context, the opportunity. Referring to is that of showing by means of their life and conduct the power and the glory of the gospel, thus exposing evil, abounding in good works, obtaining assurance of salvation for themselves, strengthening the fellowship, winning the neighbor for Christ, and through it all, here it is, through it all, glorifying God. End of quote. God has given each of us An opportunity. We're to walk in wisdom. To make the most of our opportunity. See a wise walk. Is a time conscious walk. It makes the most of the opportunity. Which means we must make the most. Of every moment. That God has given us. We're to glorify God. As we buy up the time with our families. The opportunity to teach our children through words and practice. As we love the Lord, our God, with all our hearts, with all our souls, and with all our strengths. As we love God, our children see the love of God in us. And by our actions, and then by our words, we teach them when we sit in the house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, and when we rise up. What an opportunity. Your family is your first ministry. Apart from being faithful and buying up the time with your family, don't worry about anything else until you do that. Do we waste our time? Do we take every moment possible to minister to our families, to love our families with the love of Christ? How do you Use your spare time. Is it an example of one enamored with the glory of God in Christ? Does your example, does the use of your time reflect the love of God in your heart, soul, in your mind and how you express it with your strength? Do you take time to teach your children of His infinite wonders? Do you love your wives? Do you lead them in worship and service? We all fail. But may we from this day going forward to the glory of God buy up the time that God's given us. We once it's gone. We will never get it back. It's eternally gone. What a pri- I want to say responsibility but what a privilege God gives us. To live for his glory. See, it's all about the glory of God in the face of Christ. God has spoken through Christ. God has revealed himself in the person of Christ, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see that in Genesis or Ephesians, excuse me, one through three. God has revealed his glory to us. Man, do you love your wife? Husbands, do you really love your wives as Christ loved the church? Wives, do you submit to your husbands as to the Lord? Considering it an honor, doing it for the glory of God? Children, do you obey your parents? Employees, do you submit? Do you work hard for your employees? Not with our service, but serving the Lord. Using every moment of your day to do the best that you can. The same thing for employers. We need to buy up every opportunity God has given us. We need to buy up the opportunities in the body of Christ. This is his body, the church. God lives in his body. We, plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How do you minister in the body? God has gifted every one of you that know the Lord. And we should also use our talents. Look for ways to serve. Even if it's not with your talent, even if it's not with your spiritual gift at this time, but we need to have hearts to serve, to serve God by serving His body. It's His body and He cares for His body. You see, what we do with our time ultimately expresses our love for God. It expresses whether or not we are enamored with His glorious grace. With the majestic holiness of God. With His glory. In 1703, the fifth of eleven children was born to Timothy and Esther Edwards in East Windsor, Connecticut. Interesting, we have people from Connecticut here this morning. Timothy was a Puritan pastor, and this child was the only son out of 11 children. Yet God in his sovereignty would use this child, Jonathan Edwards. And folks, this is not about Jonathan Edwards. It's about what God did in the life of Jonathan, and the heart, I should say, of Jonathan Edwards. He had a heart to glorify God. And in his ministry, he in large part sparked the first great awakening, almost considered the only great awakening in America. He would become known as America's greatest preacher or pastor, I should say. Some would say preacher. America's greatest theologian, philosopher. He would write what some would consider America's greatest book the freedom of the will, and it's not as you think, by the way. Edwards would also preach the greatest sermon ever preached on American soul, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was homeschooled and he entered Yale at 13 to study theology. But listen to this. He was not converted until he was 17. But within a year of his conversion, he was an interim pastor at a Scottish Presbyterian church in downtown New York City. Today's downtown New York City. By the time that he began to pastor, about a year after he was saved, he had an amazing conviction to be faithful to God. For Jonathan Edwards' had truly grasped the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he was resolved not to squander the gracious opportunity that God had given him, his predetermined opportunity. He pursued holiness with everything that was in him. And as a result of all this, he sat down and wrote what we know of today as his resolutions, 70 of them, over a period of about 18 months. Amazing. When he was 19 and 20 years of age. His preamble reads, and by the way, I meant to mention this. If you want to get this in complete detail, this illustration, uh, look up Steve Lawson and uh, Redeeming the Time, and he has a thing about Jonathan Edwards that's really good. Look it up on YouTube. I found it years ago, and then uh, Mike sent it to me yesterday, and it was the same one that I had already watched. So it's really good. It's a good reminder. The preamble to these resolutions read this, being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. That's a good start, isn't it? I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And the first four resolutions point us to the glory of God. They show Jonathan's heart for the glory of God, his pursuit of God's glory in his life. Edwards knew that he had a set number of days to glorify God, and he was resolved to buy up that predetermined time that God had given to him. The first resolution begins this way. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. His heart and His purpose in life. As you study His life. You study what God had done in His life. They're summed up with this question. What will bring the most glory to God? That was what was on his heart, it seemed, all the time. He would rise at 4 a.m. to spend time with God, to spend time in His Word, to spend time in prayer on a daily basis. These 70 resolutions and his life revealed that he had a high view of Scripture and that he was consumed with the beauty of God's glory. Edward stood on the shoulders of the reformers and the Puritans. You know what's interesting? Before his conversion, he hated the doctrine of election. But upon his conversion, he saw God's beauty and sovereign election and began to love the true God as God had revealed himself through his word. There are 66 other resolutions after those first four. Really not in any particular order. It seems that they were as came to his mind. But the fifth and sixth ones are significant because they relate to what we're talking about today. After dealing with the glory of God in four resolutions, his fifth resolution said, Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can and the sixth resolved to live with all my might while I do live he was a man that lived with all his might and he did so for the glory of god you know what i see edward's heart and his life truly demonstrated the meaning of what it what it means i said that way to be regenerated. To have the life of God in him. He had a new heart. A heart enamored with the glory of God and the face of Christ. He was saved young. And so I've thought about this. I know he had a rebellious heart. I know he spoke of having a rebellious heart before salvation. But I'm sure he did not sin the way some people sin in their lives. Because he was pretty young. Yet, he was so thankful for the God of glory and his salvation. May we, this morning, as we contemplated already Ephesians 1 through 3, may God, through his word, reveal. His magnificent, majestic glory. For when you see Him as He truly is, it is life-changing. And He is revealed in the God-man. Christ, who is the image of God. He revealed His glory, His majesty, His beauty, His grace, His holiness. It's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So in light of who God is, in light of the fact that we're undeserving sinners apart from Him, what will we do with the time that God has allotted to us? The predetermined season that God has sovereignly given you. Will you make the most of your time from this day forward? Will you do everything to the glory of the worthy one? God's word says, whatsoever you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. A missionary once wrote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you're here today and you do not know God's glory, if you do not know Christ, who is the revelation of the Father, God has given you an opportunity today. God has sovereignly given you an opportunity today to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas, I would say, is the most tragic example of a wasted opportunity. He spent three years in the presence of the very Son of God. He was one of the inner circle of disciples, yet he betrayed our Lord and forfeited his soul for 30 pieces of silver. Paul, concerned that some of the Corinthians in the second book of Corinthians might, receive God's, might have received God's grace in vain, wrote this, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Yes, God is sovereign, but man is responsible. Repent and believe the gospel. God is a glorious God, and He has purchased our salvation. He has purchased our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to repent and believe. Jesus took our place. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. If you don't know Him today, cry out to Him. Believe on Him. Repent of your sins and look to Christ and He will save you. The glorious grace of God in the face of Christ, the kindness of God, should lead you to repentance. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your glory. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed your glory in the person of Christ. Thank you that He is the image of the invisible God. Thank you for salvation that we have in Christ, God. Thank you for the opportunity, the life that you've given us. And God, we repent of wasting time in the past. But God, you have empowered us to walk worthy of your calling, to walk in wisdom. We are enabled by your Spirit that indwells us. God, may we, beginning this day, walk in wisdom Buying up every moment of every day, even our opportunity, and do so for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if there's anyone here that's never seen the glorious grace of God in the face of Christ, the communion service is a visual demonstration of God's grace and the gospel. The unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken and just as the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing our presence in uh, bringing us into the presence of God. I mean think about that. think about what God did. God brought us into his presence forgiven. As children of God, we come into the Shekinah presence of God. When Christ's body was broken on the cross, he broke, or excuse me, when Christ's body was broken on the cross, he brought all his own into the presence where we find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ. And just as the Passover wine represented celebration and blessing, it also represented judgment, at least on an occasion. So here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ took our judgment that we might have blessing. See, it's only in Christ. It's only faith in the wrath of God being placed upon Him that we have blessing. And so we celebrate this morning, we celebrate the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We partake of the cup, symbolizing our betrothal to Him, that we are espoused to Him as a church, that I am His and He is mine, the fulfillment of the new covenant. And we await, maybe not as patient as we ought sometimes, but we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb in which He will celebrate with us in person. Just like the first century bride, we're to keep all in our lamps, filled with the Spirit, and our wicks trimmed, waiting for the return of the bridegroom. Wicks trimmed is very significant when it comes to the Lord's Supper because it symbolizes Examining ourselves, confessing our sins, being ready for His return. We are not to partake unless we examine ourselves first. And He has said if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning and you're born again by the Spirit of God in Christ you're welcome to partake with us if you're not born again. If God has not changed your heart, let it pass you by. This is for believers only. It's for believers. All believers should partake, but if you're not willing to examine yourself and confess your sin, you should not partake. I want to give you a few moments and give myself a few moments in private prayer so that we do not partake in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself, confess your sin, and He will forgive you.